Hello and welcome to Season 5 of Microphilosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. For nearly 12 years, this show has been coming out irregularly and in a jumble of different formats. But for this season, we're going to settle into a groove, well at least for a while. Season 5 is a mini-series which ties into my new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. In each episode, I'm going to invite two guests to share their suggestions for how to think better, and I'll be chipping in a few ideas of my own. We're kicking off the series with a special edition recorded live at St George's Bristol in association with Bristol Ideas. The occasion of the event is the publication of of my book, which is called How to Think Like a Philosopher. Um, I wanted the subtitle to be And When Not To. Uh, (laughs) Publishers are very conservative and they say you must not have anything negative in your title. Um, So um, they unanimously agreed with that and and I went along with that. So... Good question, maybe. Uh, was I allowing myself to be too swayed by other people, or was that appropriate deference to expertise? We may well come to that. This is not me talking about my book. Um, it's me talking about the general issues with some real proper philosophers who know what they're talking about. So let me introduce them. Lisa Portolotti, she's a philosopher of the cognitive sciences, focusing on philosophy of psychology and psychiatry. And she's got a new book coming out soon, with Bloomsbury called Why Delusions Matter. And I've also joined by Rebecca Buxton, who has recently uh, come to Bristol to be a lecturer in social and political philosophy at the university, having previously come from uh, Cambridge, Oxford before that. Uh, She specialises in philosophy, ethics, and issues around forced migration. She's also the co-author of a book called The Philosophy Queens, with Lisa Whiting, which is described, I think, very accurately by the publisher as a long-awaited book about the lives and works of women in philosophy by women in philosophy. Let's get this discussion going. So what I want to do is I've asked both of my guests to sort of kick us off with a suggestion for something that is important for thinking well, and maybe something that isn't always thought of as being important for thinking well. I mean, when I was writing the book, I was very aware that a lot of stuff about philosophical method will teach you about, you know, logic and principles of deduction and spotting fallacies. It's all about these formal mechanisms of thinking. But I was perhaps more interested in what we might call virtues, habits and attitudes. But perhaps we'll talk more about that later. Lisa, what would you like to propose as something that is really quite essential for thinking well? So... Usually when we think about what the philosopher can contribute, we have this strong sense that a philosopher's ideas need to be original, need to be something that come from the philosopher's own interest and own research. And definitely this often translates into the common suggestion that we make to our students, to our children, that they should take things with a pinch of salt, that they should approach things in a critical way. They shouldn't just accept everything that comes from the television or the books or or the people who talk to them. They should be able to critically assess the information that they receive before they accept it and they make it their own. And that, I think, a very important message of philosophy that we have the capacity to assess information, we have the capacity to judge whether a certain argument is a good argument or not. But I think sometimes we may take that too far, 
because we also have the tendency to think sometimes that we are better than our peers um, when we think, maybe we think more clearly, or we can come up to things ourselves. And that is a bit of a kind of arrogance that sometimes we have. And I think very recently, uh, certainly during the pandemic, people were talking about this idea of doing your own research. So when you don't know how things are, when you are in an environment characterized by a lot of uncertainty, so there are, for instance, unpredictable events that you need to face, so decisions that you don't feel you are prepared to make. Even experts sometimes disagree. Even um, authorities change their mind about what the right course of action is. So what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to trust? And so a lot of the message that you could see was like, oh, you have to do your own research, you know, go and read the papers, go and talk to people, make up your mind, you can do it. And in a way, I understand that it's a very strong temptation. It's really empowering to think that, you know, when there is something really unsettling, the change the way we we live and that forces us to make decisions. We can just, you know, get our strength, go online or talk to people and come up with solutions that nobody has thought about before. But it's also kind of very unlikely that that's going to be the case. So I think what philosophers, good philosophers can teach us is that knowledge is not something that we can all get for ourselves independently of other people. That knowledge is really a joint effort, a collective effort. And there is a lot of division of labor. We can be good at some things. We can have knowledge in some domains. We can have some skills where we are clearly better than other people at doing things. But we cannot do that in all domains. We have to recognize that there are limitations to what we can achieve. And this applies also to doing your own research. Because I may be able to read and to assess arguments, but it's difficult sometimes for me to be able to recognize whether the source of information that I'm approaching is a reliable source. Very often websites all look the same, all look very professional. There are links to papers in peer-reviewed journals. There are quotes from famous people. How do I know that the message that they're giving me comes from evidence-based arguments, comes from people who know what they're doing, who have considered all possibilities and so on? So I think what I'm suggesting is that we need some kind of balance We need to be able not to accept things just as they are. We need to be able to recognize that we have the capacity to assess arguments. At the same time, we shouldn't think that we can do everything ourselves. And we should also have the humility to recognize that our expertise, our skills reach only so far. That resonates a lot with certain things in the book. And in the book, I should say, I I quote a lot of philosophers (laughs) I've interviewed and stuff over the years. So... I didn't approach this book as like, here's me having my unique insight and how to, how to think like a philosopher. It's not how to think like me. It's um, how to think like the very good contemporary philosophers and historical ones have done. And perhaps we'll sort of come back to this question though about balance, how you find that balance in a minute. Because another thing that I think resonates with me from what you've said is that you know often people are looking for like rules, do this, do that. And it can sound a bit boring or dull and also frustrating, but often the right answer to something is, it's not do this or that, it's find the appropriate degree of this, right? So it's not like trust 
other people completely or think entirely for yourself, mm. you have to find the balance in between. I don't know how we do that. But I mean, Re- Rebecca, just over to you. How, how much does that culture of you know thinking for yourself and perhaps this also idea about originality too, because I think this is kind of highly prized. The way, the way we teach philosophy <clears throat> is often very much through focusing on these individuals. You know, you study Kant, you study Descartes, you study Locke. And it's, it's all about these individuals and they are admired for having their ideas and, and whole schools get named after um, individuals. Is, is that kind of emphasis on the individual thinking for themselves and originality, is that something you recognise in philosophy? Uh, is it something you think is problematic? Are there many good things about it? Yeah, so I, I do think it's problematic. And, and part of the problem that I have teaching philosophy is that lots of students come in as kind of extremely keen on one particular philosopher and they're obsessed with all of their works usually Nietzsche and um and 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 they're desperate to kind of hero worship in a way and and they want to learn everything they possibly can about about this one person and I think that's dangerous for a few reasons so I think it it doesn't reflect properly on who philosophy is for and who can be a philosopher so there was a really famous study done in America on a variety of disciplines about whether or not people within the discipline thought that you had to be a genius in order to succeed and philosophy overwhelmingly came out as the top discipline so loads of people thought that in order to be a philosopher you have to be a genius and obviously who we think of as a genius is gendered, racialized, stratified by class, all these kinds of things. And philosophy is very susceptible to these kinds of problems, I think. And the way that the canon is organized is through the study of big thinkers, or it was at least. So I think we're slightly starting to move away from that a little bit. I mean, because it's even the case, isn't it, that again, changing a bit now, but you know, you are the co-author of a book with, with, with Lisa Whiting. But the vast majority of philosophy, certainly in the 20th century academic world, it was single authored. And yeah. even seeing a second name on a paper or book was very, very unusual. Yeah, I think co-authoring is becoming a little bit more popular in philosophy now. If it, also, if you just look at academic journals. So I've co-authored several things, including sort of things that traditionally you would just write by yourself. And I think that's one way in which other disciplines in universities have influenced philosophy in a good way, that you're encouraged to be more collaborative. You know, the best philosophy isn't really done sat alone in an armchair thinking really hard. It's done, like, collaborating with others, using expertise, speaking to people. Like, we've known this for ages, <laughs> thinking about philosophy, but, yeah, people probably imagine that philosophers just sort of sit shut in their office and... Reading. I mean, I mean he's, he's, he's historically inaccurate, <coughs> isn't it? So, you know, Plato yeah. had his academy, Aristotle the Lyceum, Epicurus's garden. Mm-hmm. So these communities of thinkers will go back right to the origin, in Western tradition, go right back. In other traditions as well, in, in lots of the orthodox schools of Indian philosophy, uh, a lot of it took, but it was group, group debating in very formalised manners. And mm-hmm. the, the canonical figures of, of modern European philosophy, again, I mean, you know, Descartes, because his meditations is written as like one person thinking, but you know, he, he wrote letters, he sent drafts to people, it was published with these exchanges and replies, so it's very, very dialogical. And an issue I have is that, you know, because of, when I was editing the Flossers magazine in particular, 
I often got people sending me things, and it was often, it was always men, actually. I don't think I've had a single woman doing this. And it was men sending me things that, like, they've been sitting in their, in their own heads, and they've got this brilliant new theory. And the, the problem is that I, I, I'm sympathetic because they're often intelligent people who perhaps haven't had the opportunity to talk about these ideas in these settings, but they've run away in their own heads too far. This isn't just a theoretical issue, it's a practical one too. So let me give you two practical examples because it's all very well saying that we need to get away from this and we need to recognise the role of other people, but then we also have to exercise our judgement into who we believe, and this is where it gets tricky. So two everyday examples... One bit more, both a bit flippant in a way. There was a farmer recently, I was at an event, and a farmer was talking about how they were starting to grow nuts in Somerset or something, right? And they were saying, they were looking at what to do, and they said, the thing is, if you ask five farmers how to grow nuts, you'll get six answers. So their solution was they just picked one who they liked and just did what they said. <laughs> you know, in other words, it wasn't worth them trying to decide, well, which person should I believe? Because they couldn't possibly work it out. So they just picked one and went with it. And similarly, I mean, I had to, I had to get some roofing work done on, on my house. Sorry, sorry to anyone sort of under 40 who, who can never afford a house ever. Yeah. Um, it, seems a bit, it seems vulgar to admit you've got one, I'm going to admit. Um, but, you know, and again, similarly, three companies, different advice about which solution to take. And my point of view was, do you know what? I just don't know. And if, if I internalise too much this idea, I should think for myself. I should do the research. Really, a couple of hours Googling reading things online, am I going to come to a better answer than these other people? But then the solution seems to be you just defer. So what kind of things should we be keeping in mind when we're deciding how much we have to just accept what other people tell us and how much we have to kind of question that and think for ourselves? I think it's a very difficult question to answer because the answer may be very relative to the context. So it seems to me that in the case of repairs to the roof, you may be looking at, you know, the credentials of the three companies that you asked uh, advice from and just to see whether they've got good reviews, whether to see whether, you know, they, they existed <laughs> 10 days ago, and just maybe asking them some questions to see whether they actually know what they're saying, you know, whether they've got their supplies ready, whether they could do the job. So in, in, in those situations, you know, who should I trust to fix my roof? You've got certain ideas about how to proceed, but you cannot easily apply those in another situation. And this is, I think, extremely unsettling when people who have credentials and who have good reputations and people who are trusted maybe by the government or the health authorities to give advice disagree on what you should be doing. Because at that point, you know, and I think we had some wonderful examples during the pandemic, especially at the very beginning when people didn't know how the virus was transmitted. And so there was all this debate about whether masks were actually um, effective or not. It was very difficult for anybody to know. And we had this phenomenon where, you know, people were saying that overnight everybody became an epidemiologist because all of a sudden, you know, scientists in other areas came up with very complicated theories about who we should trust and why. And, you know, as you say, very intelligent people, people who know how to communicate, but you wonder, you know, where do they get their information from? So in some respects, I think it's too demanding to expect that we as 
individual citizens are able to recognize all the time which sources of information are reliable or not. I think it's too much to demand. I think we should think in more kind of long-term and systemic uh, ways about this. I mean, we should live in a society that helps us make those decisions and that creates environments that, as uh, Neil Levy says in his book, Bad Beliefs, are less epistemically polluted, which just means that the knowledge that we get and that the knowledge that we have access to is accompanied by some indications about whether the source is reliable. Again, you know, that's difficult to implement because sometimes society itself and leaders themselves have their own agendas. And so sometimes, you know, you don't know whether those marks of reliability, you know, you can trust this person are actually in, in goodwill. You don't know whether they just want you to have the right information. But at some point, you just have to let go, I think. At some point, you just need to trust. And sometimes the reason why you trust people are a bit random. So it, there were some studies where people trust uh, people on decisions about politics, for instance, like who to vote for at an election, based on whether the person they talk to has the same taste in art. Mm. And, and it's just absolutely no relevance between the two uh, domains of knowledge. But the sense is, they are people like me. You know, I have some kind of kinship with them. So if I have to trust someone, you know, I will trust them. So there is this sense that there is a this very strong social uh, relationship that invites you to trust people that belong to the same group. And the group could be anything, could be, you know, the people who go to the same church or the people who vote for the same party, people go to the same class. And sometimes these groupings are completely arbitrary. But we are, you know... But that's what psychologists seem to, to think, social thinkers. So we do these things in groups, and, and we feel this very strong sense of belonging and affiliation with the groups that we identify with. And this can be a good thing or a bad thing. It can lead us astray, and it can lead us to make good decisions, depending again on the context. So I think it's very difficult to think about the general solution and that's why, you know, it's always easy to say, find the balance. But then it's very difficult to measure how far you should go from the two extremes in each particular situation. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's very, very true. In a way, what you're saying is we shouldn't trust our own instincts about who to trust, right? Because we're subject to so many biases. So, again, I'm thinking about if two people come around to do quotes on your house and you've got a, say you've got a dog. If the first person comes in and goes, oh, hello, doggy, doggy, this is lovely, isn't it? And strikes in. The first one comes in and goes, oh, I don't like your dog. I bet you most people would, would prefer the first one to the second, even though how much they like dogs <coughs> tells you nothing about their skills as an electrician, whatever it might be. Uh, what do you make of this, Rebecca? Particularly this question of, you know, this, who do we trust, who we don't trust? Because Lisa was talking about how we're not very good at that. And also these, these social reasons why certain people are trusted and others aren't, which can often embed certain things around, you know, privilege and prejudice, can't they? Yeah, so I think that's definitely true, right? So we're very susceptible. And I think, I think sometimes, and this is why I think what you were saying at the beginning was really interesting, is philosophers tend to think that they're above all of those mm. things, that we sort of float in this sort of weird ethereal realm where we, we can make totally rational decisions all the time, which obviously is um, not true at all. So I, I do think it's good for philosophers to be reflective about how they are socially situated beings, 
right? So we are as susceptible as other people to those kinds of pressures. But, but I think you're right. So given that we're like subject to all these kinds of constraints, we, I guess, have to figure out when those are appropriate for thinking philosophically well. So we definitely do have to defer to people in some context. So like I work on the philosophy of immigration. I couldn't possibly do all the empirical work that lots of people in migration studies do, which is a kind of different discipline altogether. But I have to use their work in order to do good philosophy, right? So if I tried to do everything myself, I'd never do anything. So in those contexts, it's definitely right to defer. But I think, I think we do have to be careful about the kind of underlying social and political reasons for why we're doing that. In the book I did, um, I kind of like sum it up with this idea, think for yourself, but not by yourself. Thanks very much, Lisa. That was really, I mean, we could have talked the whole evening just on, on, on that point. It raised so many things. But Rebecca, what was it you wanted to put on the table for us? Yeah, so when you asked me the question, how do you think like a philosopher? I was like, oh, well, that raises all sorts of horrible philosophical questions that we need to, to answer, like figuring out what it is even to think like a philosopher at all. Like it's very, we have to answer that question before the how. But what I thought was that most of the things that we think about when we think about thinking philosophically, that was a lot of things, are kind of internal to the person. You think you have to think clearly and carefully and critically be self-reflective, know when to trust people and when not to trust people. But I also think in order to do all of those things, you have to be in the right kind of context to do all of those things. So in order to think like a philosopher, the first thing you really need is lots of time. And I, I don't know how other people do philosophy. I mostly do it sort of hunched over my laptop, stressed. <laughs> um, but you need space and time to digest information, think about it, consolidate it, speak to other people about it. But you also need all the kind of social contexts that you need for other things just to be comfortable and happy. So you need a roof over your head, enough money for food. You know, if you're stressed about how you're going to pay your next uh, energy bill, you're probably not going to be able to think philosophically richly about whatever David Hume said. So I think those kind of external constraints are really important. And obviously there are exceptions to this. So there are some philosophers who thought incredibly well under very stressful circumstances. So like Antonio Gramsci wrote his prison notebooks in prison by the Italian fascist government. So, so some people thrive off of these kinds of external constraints. But most of us need to be comfortable and happy in order to do good philosophy. Come back to time in a second, but... Um, I mean, you're talking about thinking philosophically. I mean, Lisa, you sort of working in philosophy of psychology. I mean, do you think perhaps for any kind of clear thinking, yeah. it's important for people to be in the right conditions and that to, to ask people to think clearly about anything is, is too much if, you know, they're, they're struggling, they're stressed, et cetera, et cetera. Is there, is there evidence around that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, first of all, philosophers don't have the, you know, they're not the only ones to have the privilege to think clearly or to think about mm. abstract questions. Mm. I would say all scientists ask themselves questions that are sometimes general and cannot be immediately kind of proven or disproven by an empirical investigation. 
But that requires time, it requires the conditions that uh, Rebecca was just describing. Nobody can do good science or good philosophy in an environment where um, they are worried about surviving or about, you know, uh, keeping their family safe or whatever it is. Of course, you know, there are exceptions. So Rita Levi-Montalcini, who was a Nobel Prize winner, did the most incredible research in her kitchen, hiding from, from the fascist government because she was Jewish. So, you know, you've got people who, again, find ways, are resourceful, but again, she was coming from a very privileged background. She had a good education. We shouldn't underestimate the importance of these things. So definitely, I think, for thinking clearly, you need that kind of um, context where you're not constantly struggling, whether you, you're given the resources to think for yourself and to understand the kind of the sources that are available to you. I also think that, and this is a point that Rebecca touched on before, you need to recognize the boundaries of the problems that you are thinking about. So very often we think that the philosopher is almost like, doesn't have any constraints, right? They can ask the most general questions, like what's the meaning of life and why does, does it all matter and so on. And there is nothing about reality that can at some point stop them and say, oh, you're going wrong here. <laughs> and there is this kind of incredible freedom. But I think, as Rebecca was saying, some of the questions that we are asking, you know, we need reality to answer. And sometimes reality answers via other scientists, other researchers. So, like, I do philosophy of psychology. Uh, of course, I'm interested in how the mind works. But that question itself is not that meaningful. You know, it has to be broken down into more specific questions. And to answer those specific questions, I need for psychologists to do experiments. And I need to know how is it that we behave in certain circumstances. And I cannot base that on observing myself or the people around me because that would be a very limited sample. So in, in a sense, you, you kind of need this, this interaction with, with other people who are also asking questions and to talk to each other in order to understand what the kind of boundaries of the phenomenon that you're interested in are, to anchor these kind of really generally interesting questions to something that you know, can be observed and can be studied and can be discussed, and solve the problems when there are conflicts, you know, solve, you know, when, when things don't seem to, to fit well together, you know, trying to think how that can be. And again, you know, I... I completely agree with Rebecca. In order to be able to have the luxury of doing all that, you need to be comfortable. And the thing about the, having time uh, is interesting about how we think, because I think that you, you say, how do you do your philosophy? You said you do it mainly hunched over your computer, right? <laughs> I'm wondering whether there's an aspect of thinking which isn't really thought about too much. I think actually, as a matter of fact, isn't a lot of thinking done in the background of your head. Now, I mean, so to give an example of this, there's this wonderful little book called Daily Rituals written by Mason Curry. It's, a, it's one of these brilliant ideas for a book, and he had it first. He basically <laughs> simply wrote short entries on the working habits of artists, intellectuals, and writers. And it was really interesting because there's a lot of diversity, and there are always outliers. But I would say the, the overall, the biggest pattern I can find, the most consistent pattern I can find was that most of these people worked for something between three and five hours a day, right? On whatever it is they did, their, their, their philosophy, their writing. And the rest of the time, they had their rituals of the day, which included breaks 
walks, whatever it might be. And I sort of think that in order to think well, you actually have to have the time to, to stew and digest things, perhaps even unconsciously, or just let your mind play, let it, let it, let it kind of wander. And isn't that a luxury of time that um, a lot of people don't have? Does that ring true for the way you work? Or, yeah, or, yeah, I think so. I mean, I was once given advice by um, Amir Srinivasan, who's the chiefly chair of social and political theory, or whatever her title is at Oxford, um, who has a great new book called The Right to Sex. And she, I was so struggling through my PhD, and she said, well, you should never do more than three hours of philosophy a day, or writing your PhD a day, and do it first thing in the morning, and then you have the rest of the day to do whatever you want. And I do that. I wake up very early in the morning, sit and sort of dump whatever it is that's in my head for three hours. And then if I do more philosophy, great. And if I don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, I now work at university, so I have all sorts of other rubbish that I have to do. But yeah, you need time to allow your brain to work in the background. And often I have ideas for philosophy papers sort of in the middle of the night randomly or when I'm on walks. or So yeah, I think a lot of the effort is... is Subconscious. So the, creating the time and the space, I mean, there is a certain amount we can or cannot control of this. And mm. I think it's just about thinking as well, about, you know, it's not obvious what allows you to do most. So I think there are some academics in some institutions who have such high teaching loads mm. that actually they can't really do much thinking at all, right? And similarly, I was, I was just hearing this example the other day of a, a person who worked at an Amazon um, warehouse, which is, you know, a lot of people's ideas now are like the worst job in the world. But actually, the point about working in the Amazon work, warehouse is that he could um, keep his headphones on all day. And he listened to about eight hours of audiobooks throughout his shift, right? So in a strange kind of way, that's a person who's managed to create a working life in which they've got a lot of time to do that kind of mental stuff because what they're doing physically doesn't require concentration and they can do it. You know, and I know that, you know, a lot of people just simply don't have the luxury to change their circumstance, whatever. Perhaps there are things we, we, can, we can do around that. But also I think what Lisa was saying about the shape of the problem, because everything is connected to everything else. And if you think about everything related to the thing you're thinking about, then it goes on forever, doesn't it? So isn't there a certain skill to kind of, the best philosophers, as it were, can zoom in on what really matters about an issue? And I guess not just the best philosophers, the best scientists too. They see there's lots of stuff there, but it's developing the skill to really hone in on, on what matters. Now, that, that's the kind of thing, again, it sounds fine. I don't know how practically one would advise someone to do that. Do you have any ideas about um, Well, I think, like, so supervising students and things, they often come in kind of with amazing projects that they want to work on that are huge and that they can't possibly write an essay on. So my younger sister was writing um, like a EPQ extended essay for when she, she's 18. She's telling me about her friend's topic, which is a philosophy topic. And her, her friend's question was, is death at the centre of everything that we do? <laughs> and I sort of said you cannot answer that question in 4,000 words <laughs> why would you ask yourself that so I think often it is about finding the right question to match the scale of what it is that you're up to but then I think there's a danger that philosophers become too obsessed with tiny questions that don't get to the heart of the problem so i think again it's about finding a balance between the two so you want to be able to ask big general questions and be and you also don't want to get stuck in 
tiny, tiny questions. What I'm thinking is that, you know, sometimes the tiny, tiny thing is the one that, that matters and sometimes yeah. it isn't. And what I think is, for me, a bit frustrating about some academic philosophy at its worst is that it doesn't have that discrimination. So in other words, you know, any kind of debate can, can generate questions. And you can always, like, find a problem with it and go down that rabbit hole. But, but the question is, why are you illuminating the issue? And, you know, maybe, maybe to get away from philosophy and think about thinking more generally... I think that the sort of trying to kind of stop and ask, is this the important question or not, is, is quite significant. Because in, in politics, it happens, again, you get these attention hijackers, don't you, whereby something comes along and everyone's talking about it. And actually what's happened is the whole focus has been shifted by the really important issue. You must come across this in debates around migration, I imagine, where... Everyone's talking about X and they're ignoring the, the importance of Y. Mm. And in fact, not only that, it's not only something that can happen by accident, it can happen deliberately. So um, there's Linton Crosley, I think, the famous Australian political strategist who advised the Conservative Party, uh, came up with this thing called, it's called the dead cat strategy. And the idea is that if you're having a conversation and you slam a dead cat on the table... Everyone goes, oh my God, it's a dead cat. And the point is, they're now talking about the dead cat, not the other thing. And, and I think th- th- this is a deliberate strategy, which he advised the Conservative Party to do. And they, a member of the Conservative Party did do it in the election when Ed Miliband was ahead in the polls and, and they decided, someone just said, they're going to get rid of Trident and join up with the SNP. And by the way, he stabbed his brother in the back, right? Uh, just, just threw these things on the table. And, you know, most people accepted there wasn't much substance behind these things. But it didn't matter. People were then talking about that. And so this, this thing about, you know, being aware of the fact that not only can we inadvertently latch on to the wrong aspect of an issue, there were lots of people trying to get us to focus on the wrong things. I mean, I don't know if you've got any, any examples of your own. In migration, it's not so much... Well, so people are deliberately trying to get us to talk about certain things in migration, in particular small boats crossing the channel, as opposed to big structural problems with the asylum system, how immigration is distributed globally, especially with regards to refugees who are overwhelmingly in the global south, funded by the global south, not in the global north. So there are people trying to get us to do that. But the problem is the many, many people who then follow those people overwhelmingly the people who I speak to so I used I used to also work in the house of um, commons for an MP and so I would go up to his constituency which was a pro-Brexit constituency and he was a pro-Brexit MP and I would tour around and listen to people so I I didn't agree with their position but I would listen to what they had to say about Brexit and how great it was apparently And they would just repeat things that were completely not true that they had been told during the campaign, but they really believed that they were true. And I think sometimes we tend to think that people who believe those things are just ignorant and should think better for themselves and things like this. But it's exactly that, that they've been told it and by people that they trust and think know what's right for them and their communities. So... Yeah, I think I don't know. I think it's really difficult. Basically, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it, basically it's all, it's, it, it is very difficult. That that is that is that is certainly true. It's very difficult. And the thing about thinking for yourself and doing your own research, <laughs> it, it is fascinating to me because it, it strikes me this is what a lot of conspiracy theorists make a big point of. They say 
You've got to think for yourself. People aren't thinking for themselves. They're believing the official narrative. They, you have interviews with people on marches and stuff, and they say, check it out, look it up, go on the internet, look for yourself. Mm-hmm. There was a sticker during the pandemic, uh, the early days of vaccinations, near me, talking about how, how many deaths there had been caused by the vaccines. And it says, you know, look it up. It's government data. They even provided a web link for the website this information supposedly came from. Another, another one was a health food shop which had a thing in the window about how standing near to, to a boiling kettle, if it was chlorinated water, could produce birth defects in your child. Now, it, and they gave, again, a reference, an academic paper. What makes me hopeful here, though, is that if you actually get into the habit of actually checking those sources out, you don't have to be an expert, usually, to see very quickly that it's not actually saying what people say it is saying. So in the case of the boiling kettle, please don't worry. It was actually, actually, if you looked at the paper properly, it was looking at high levels of chlorination in somewhere like Bangladesh. And although certain birth defects were higher with it, other ones were lower. So, you know, the headline, double your risk of X, isn't so powerful. It says, and also half your risk of Y. And as for the vaccines thing, it was just that old, you probably know this one, the sort of zombie statistic went around. It was actually about... There's an app where if you had any symptoms at all, after two weeks after having a vaccination, you reported it or something. So it was just the number of people who were ill after having the vaccination, nothing to do with, with causation. So sorry, that was a little bit of going back a little bit to what um, Lisa was saying before. But let's just um, wrap up this, this thought about the external factors that we need in order to think well. We need a certain amount of time. We may need a certain amount of education we may need a certain amount of of physical resources are there any other sort of things do you think are important about the external environment that are important if we're thinking well and particularly things we might be able to control because uh, some things we can't control right some things we maybe can because the thing about time is that there are people competing for our time right there are people trying to hijack our time and anyone who uses social media and stuff is kind of aware of that Perhaps we shouldn't be too fatalistic about this, can we? We can sort of rebel against these, uh, some of these things. Some people can, definitely, but some people can't, right? So, I've just quit Twitter recently. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And that's been great for my experience of time. So, I don't spend hours scrolling through um, rubbish on Twitter anymore. And that's a way in which I've managed to control aspects of my time. But some people... The constraints on their time aren't the kinds of things that they can control. So, if, you know, if you're a single parent with three children, energy bills piling up, like saying, oh, well, if you did this, this and this, then you could think a bit more philosophically. Well, just might not be. I, I, I think we should recognise that it's bad that some people don't have the freedom in order to have some of these things that we think make us kind of distinctly human like it's part of a human experience to be able to reflect and ask big questions in a meaningful way and discuss them with others and some people aren't able to do that i mean this is a very good point actually i mean i'm now i'm now feeling a bit bad the reason for being is you know this book is called how to think like a philosopher and i do talk about the importance of the social etc etc but I guess that actually the kind of message, messages we get in general about how to improve, how to make our lives better on so many fronts are always emphasizing the extent to which you have the agency, yeah. you can do it. Read this book, follow this routine, eat this food, drink this stuff, you can do it. And what always gets left behind in this are the social situations which are obstacles to this. 
healthy eating is, of course, the worst example where, you know, it's like, just eat loads of chickpeas and you'll be fine. You know, you don't have to eat this junk food. And it's not addressing the fact that, you know, people are having to eat what is cheap and convenient and available and also what their kids are asking for. And the kind of environment and culture that we have, that ain't going to be a lentil stew, which takes an hour to, to boil away on your cooker. So I think it's a very appropriate that you've made us um, th- think about that. We've, we've got to finish up. A recurring theme has been, you know, the idea that we have to recognise how, how many endeavours are actually collective. And it's not just about the, the individual uh, geniuses. So we do have various people to thank. So Le- thank Lisa, Lisa for our signing, right? Now, don't clap after every name. We'll be here a long time. But I want to mention in the box, obviously, had Mayu on the sound. We have Tom, the events team, Julian and Charlie, and Zoe, the Bristol Ideas, who are the partners here. The stewards are volunteers. And so Roger, Maggie, Richard, John, and Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Main thanks, of course, to our, our wonderful guests who've been very eloquent and thoughtful and have given us tons to think about. Lisa Bortolotti and Rebecca Buxton. Thank you for coming. I hope you enjoyed the show I've got more fantastic guests coming up in the series so do subscribe as well as rank, review, share and all the usual things to help the word get round this podcast has no adverts and no sponsors so if you'd like to support it why not just buy the book How to Think Like a Philosopher or go to julianbergini.com to see how you can become a supporter and receive exclusive benefits until next time If nothing prevents, goodbye.